The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. It's really nice to be back here. Well, I'm always a little daunted because you guys are you're about like two or three steps ahead of us technologically uh, in Berkeley. Berkeley likes to think it's the center of the universe, but uh, uh, we follow in your footsteps. Um, it's been a while since I've been here. I think the last time that I was here was when we did the Dharma music. I don't know if any of you were, were there. Uh, but I always really enjoy coming down here and especially nice to come on a Monday evening and sit for 45 minutes so that our energy, my energy, is, is really settled even though I had to come down on the freeway and had a busy day. Uh, and also I always appreciate being asked by Gil to come because we, uh, we are Dharma brothers. His, my root teacher, Sojin Weitzman, is his uh, Zen teacher, and we both have Dharma transmission uh, in Suzuki Roshi's tradition from, uh, from Sojin Roshi. And uh, so uh, I appreciate that, and I also always remember being at Tassajara with Gil uh, when he was the uh, Tonto, our head student, in uh, I think 1988, and I really looked up to him, and I still do. So uh, this is the community that's that's evolved, uh, and I always like to see how it is and what's going on down here. So uh, enough preamble because we don't have a hell of a lot of time. Uh, I've had this song knocking about in my head, and I'll sing you a little piece of it, and then the lecture will be why it was in my mind. Uh, and uh, perhaps the lecture will touch on things that are of concern to you, both in your meditation practice and in your life. In our tradition, we don't separate them particularly much. Uh, but there both is and isn't a difference. We can talk about that. Uh, so I've been thinking about this song. Have any of you heard of this? Do you know of this Irish... I'm getting some echo here. Uh, uh, Irish singer Paul Brady. Is there anyone who's heard of Paul Brady? No, there wasn't in Berkeley either. Uh, <laughs> there you go. He's a mega star in, uh, in Ireland uh, as a... Uh, an interpreter of, of traditional music. Well, as an interpreter of traditional music and as a songwriter, there it is. This is, you know, this was in tune when I brought it from home. Hmm. I'm going to do without this. (laughs) 
Uh, so the title of the song is The World is What You Make It. I'm just going to sing you the chorus and, uh, and then one of the verses. The world is what you make it. The world is what you make it, baby. The world is what you make it. Don't try to hit me with your no-can-do. Losing, losing, working on an attitude. Clean up the windows, let the sun shine through. Uh, uh. There ain't no happiness without no pain. New date, heartbreak, working up an attitude. Pick up the pieces, let pick up the pieces, hit the road again. Uh, the world is what you make it. The world is what you make it, baby. The world is what you make it. The world is what you make it. The world is what you make it, baby. The world is what you make it. The world is what you make it. <laughs> this is at the heart of our practice. I've been thinking about it. We've been studying. Uh, we had a study retreat at Berkeley Zen Center uh, over Labor Day weekend, and we studied this this old Zen poem from China uh, called the uh, the Jewel Mirror Samadhi. And in the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, it talks about uh, this sort of ancient uh, way of looking at our practice of the two truths. Is this something that you've talked about? It goes back to the earliest Buddhist teachings. Um, it's very simple. You can think about it in a variety of ways. And while Sojin Roshi was lecturing, I, I kept, uh, I made myself a list. So there's various ways of looking at the world. You can look at it, uh, you can look at these two truths as the truth of the absolute, the truth of the relative, as the truth of dark, as the truth of light, as the, tr as the truth of emptiness, the truth of form, the truth of stillness, the truth of activity, the truth of nirvana, the truth of samsara. The host, the guest, the upright, the inclined, essence, phenomenon, oneness, difference, ocean, wave. Ocean, wave is very, ocean and wave are very good uh, is because it gets to, do you have, uh, if you have an ocean, inevitably they're waves and the waves make the ocean. So you have these various ways of looking at uh, reality. Uh, I had a philosophy teacher uh, in college who, uh, I don't, I remember just about nothing from college. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, he, this I remember, he said, well, there's two kinds of people in the world those who divide things in two and those who don't. <laughs> and if you think about that for a while, 
your brain will melt down, <laughs> which is good. In Zen, we talk about not one, not two. So we talk about the interpenetration of form and emptiness. We talk about the interpenetration of the absolute and the relative. But one of the things that Sojin Roshi talked about uh, maybe a month or two ago came out just in question and answer in, uh, from a Dharma talk. And someone was, people are always wrangling with, well, you know, what about the relative? What about the absolute? Isn't the absolute better than the relative? You know, shouldn't we be aiming to live in the absolute? And um, what he said was, uh, this formulation of the two truths, uh, the first truth is the reality of things as they are, precisely as they are. Everything beyond good and bad, beyond stillness and activity, just that everything is as it is. And the second truth is the truth of the way you feel about it. This was, this really got my attention. And I went and talked to him afterwards. Uh, I said, well, where does that come from? You know, can you ch- cite chapter and verse on this? Because, you, know, you know, where did, did you have a source for this? The truth of the way things are as they are and the truth of how you feel about them. Uh, and he said, no, it just sort of came out. It actually meant a lot more to me than it meant to him. Uh, but this is often the case. You will find this is the case when you have a teacher. Uh, But what it says is, so just to be clear, the truth of how you feel about them, about things, is not necessarily true, right? You know, uh, if I picked up this guitar and I felt it was in tune, uh, that would not necessarily be the truth. But if I picked up the guitar and strummed it, you would have the truth of this guitar's tuning just as it is. Does that make sense? Uh, Which would not necessarily be, it might not sound good. In fact, it didn't, which is why I put it down. Uh, So that's not the truth, but it's, you know, this is where people get in trouble. And I've heard this again and again. uh, When they, when we stand on a position and say, This is my truth. Now, we need to know what we feel is compelling. Uh, At the same time, as we have to realize that there is conditionality in it. So, this is what, this is actually what I've learned to be doing not in some analytical way, but while I'm meditating. Uh, and it's sometimes you take this on as an actual, you might take this on as an actual practice, as a, as a component of mindfulness, examining the nature, the very nature of your feelings, 
Uh, and in this sense, talking about feelings in a very technical way, what's arising, whether you feel positive, negative, or neutral about it. Uh, one of the great teachers of the Mahayana tradition, uh, our ancestor Nagarjuna, said, seeing into the world of impermanence, investigating the world of impermanence is raising the thought of enlightenment. So it's looking at things as they are. That includes, though, looking at how you feel about them. And how you feel about this, how you feel about things, uh, creates or co-creates the reality that we live in. So we have to be very thoughtful, careful, and attuned to how we're feeling moment by moment. Uh, and realize it can lead either lead any way. For example, uh, I'm going to get to more, more difficult examples, but a, a, an example, something that came, came up for me uh, Saturday. I was helping with a wedding uh, for someone who's in our community. And I was helping a priest who, who came in, who I know very well. And the way this person was doing things, well, let's just say, it was not how I would do things. And I kept noticing it. You know, in one little, you know, it's how you held this or how you held this or where you moved or where you put things. So it's very, we're very formal in Zen, right? Uh, and I, you know... I just noticed that this kind of attitude was coming up in me. And I thought, and then I looked around the room and I realized there's nothing wrong here. Actually, everybody's having a good time. This couple is very much in love. Their parents are thrilled. There's a good feeling in the room. You know, what's my problem? <laughs> and I, f investigating that way, I realized, well, you know what? I have some choices here about how I want to be. You know, I can somehow let my crankiness or persnickiness leak in such a way that it will affect other people. Or I can accept what I just realized, actually, it's perfect. So I had feelings about it, and I had that moment of choice about whether I wanted to, how I recognized those feelings, or whether I wanted to inject that into the world. In, that's called karma, right? As soon as you, there's karma that comes from just thinking about it, which is not so heavy. As soon as you say or do something, it has more of an impact. Uh, and what was that discomfort about? I'm not quite sure. Somewhat about my preferences. The more I dig, the more I feel there was some fear in me, some fear of somehow not being seen or not being acknowledged, something 
uh, self-dependent or ego-dependent that was, uh, if I let it go, it was going to really poison the moment. It was going to certainly poison the moment for me, but it would poison the moment for the other people, which is precisely what I didn't want to do. I can live with my own problems if I have to, but, you know, to inject that into a wedding, it's like, this is, this is very bad karma, you know. <laughs> so this is why I was thinking of the world is what you make it. It's the choices that we make about how we feel uh, that then condition and reshape things as they are. So far, does that make sense? And this is our practice. We, we, I often think of this meditation hall or the zendo as a, as a kind of laboratory. It's pretty quiet. As long as we're sitting here, we actually get along really well. Uh, and we get to investigate ourselves, which is where all of these tides and rhythms and energies are generating from. So where this leads me, and I, I, is, um, has to do with the reality that we live in in this country, which I find tremendously disturbing. And I have to preface this by saying, because uh, a couple of people called me, I gave a talk on this subject a couple of weeks ago at Berkeley Zen Center, and people want to know if I assumed that everybody was in agreement with me. And I didn't, actually. But I think, but I know them. So I, that's, it was a little clearer to me. I don't know you. So it's presumptuous. It would be presumptuous for me to say, to think that you all, you don't think the way I do. I don't think the way you do, each of you. I don't know that you're going to necessarily even, that we would agree on a political basis. Although I think given that we're in Northern California, there's probably some, there's, there's something to speak to that, but, but it's really, uh, I want to be very careful about that. And I want to make room in my mind and in this room for, for everybody's, for how everybody feels, because that's part of the truth that creates the world. So I've been thinking about health care. Uh, and I've been thinking about all this stuff that I've been seeing in the news, you know, about the, the birthers who uh, believe that President Obama was not, is not actually a citizen, and the deathers who believe that, you know, he's going to create death panels, and, the, and the, the tenthers who believe that the tenth, the tenth uh, amendment to the Constitution prohibits any spending programs or regulation. Uh, the Oathers, who believe that he has already completely violated his his oath of office, these are these are things that are afoot. Uh, but I want to again, I want to backtrack and say, I think we would have a, probably a very lively discussion in this room about health care and you know what we agree on and what we don't agree on from both sides. I would assume. You know, people who are uncomfortable from the left and people who are uncomfortable from the right. 
But as soon as you start creating these blocks, birthers, tenthers, these fantasies and these stories, what's the root of that? The root of that to me is fear. Uh, and it's the projection of fear, of a real existential fear. Biologically, it's not so hard to understand. You know, as, as animals, we have a certain reactive... Uh, we have a, a reactive basis for wanting to preserve our existence. But as humans, um, what we often do is then we project it outwards. We project these fears outwards. And that's how we feel. That begins, becomes the truth of how we feel. And when we form groups and blocks and ideologies, which inevitably we do, I don't think you can get away from that, but can we investigate these in such a way that uh, we are simultaneously aware of what it is we are afraid of. There are lots of, I'm afraid about healthcare. You know, uh, it's, it's impoverishing up us, my own family. You know, it costs so much. Uh, and it's not reliable. You know, it's like when you, I've, experienced it myself and I've seen other people experience, you know, just when you need it is, I've seen, that's when you get kicked off. Uh, these are not, these are not unfounded fears. And then you fear for your well-being, you fear for, you fear for the well-being of your, the people who are concerned about death panels are concerned about the fear for their parents or perhaps for themselves as they're aging. Uh, there are all kinds of conditions that understandably give rise to this. But the question is, how do we, you know, the, the, the projection, I would say the projection on, on Obama, who as our first African-American president is, you know, he's like one of the greatest fields for projection that we've ever had. So how could you have this guy who's simultaneously a communist, a fascist, and a racist, you know? And uh, now, some of you may think that's one of one or another of those is the case. I, I, I can accept that people think that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make it true, but there's a basis for how we think about these things. So this fear is an underlying delusive force. This is, this is a really primary motivating factor for taking up the practice. It's why uh, some of you may have come to this practice by virtue of your birth and your family tradition, but a lot of us, if I look around this room, I would assume come from other traditions. Uh, I came to practice when I just didn't know what to do. And it was very frightening. I had to do something. And I walked into the meditation hall and in some mysterious way, I felt at home. 
And then, but that's when the work had to begin. That's when the work of, invest, of self-investigation had to begin. So this, I want to read you a few things and then maybe leave some time for discussion. Uh, but I'd like to say, we, each of us, needs to take responsibility for our greed, our anger, our delusion, our fear. Because there is nobody but us that's making the world. And one of the things we do by forming organization or, you know, political organization, any kind of organization, somehow it's like we think we're kind of spreading the responsibility. But still, there's nobody but us. There's nobody but me. There's nobody but you that's making this world. We take this complete responsibility. Um, I wanted to read you a few things from Suzuki Roshi. Uh, I've been digging around in his archives this week and found a few things. Uh, so speaking of... Uh, well, here's how he talks about the mechanism in his, of, of fear in his unique way. It's from a lecture of his in 1967. Once you are involved or concentrated on something, your mind will crystallize and you will have some clear idea of yourself, subjectively and objectively, of yourself. That's what will arise. That crystallized self-reflection projects itself on the world. And then you have various feelings about the object. But that object is the projection of your mind. If that feeling is good, or the object is good, the object that you project out in the world, which is your idea of the world, uh, if that object or feeling is good, you will naturally cling to it. But when you cling to some object, it means you are clinging to yourself at the same time because that object is the projected self. And that attachment will result in some fear. That's where it goes. That attachment will result in some fear. Because you attach to it and try not to lose it. You want to hold on to your security. You want to hold on to your joy. You want to hold on to this person that you love who's ill. He says, but nothing is permanent. Everything is changing. Though you cling to it, that object will change, even though you have a fear of losing it. The more your mind is particularized or crystallized, you will have uneasiness. So uneasiness is just one of the myriad ways of expressing dukkha which I'm sure you talk about all the time here. Uh, what's, what, how does Gill translate dukkha? What? Unsatisfactory, yeah. Suffering, yeah. It's, sorry? There's various kinds. You can break it down in different times. But in the broadest sense, it's just this feeling that something is wrong. Uh, that or this uneasiness 
So that is what, so then Suzuki says, the more, oh, so let me say, that, the more your mind is particularized or crystallized, you will have uneasiness. In other words, the more you fix on, you, the more you believe your feelings, uh, you will have uneasiness. On the back of my car is, uh, if you believe in uh, the power of bumper stickers, uh, this is a good one. Don't believe everything you think. Uh, but think it. That, that's the other thing I want to encourage you. Think anything you want to think. Really go where your mind, explore where your mind wants to go, but just don't believe that that's necessarily the way it is. Anyway, that's a digression. Uh, that is what will result from your ordinary effort. What I think he means is that is what result, this, this uneasiness is what will result from your habitual activity. While zazen practice or meditation practice will not result in this kind of fear or attachment. Uh, well, sometimes it does. But right in the meditation is the opportunity to be free from it. That is the, that's the tool, that's, that's what happens as we sit. Uh, I don't know about, well, I think it's gen- almost universally true. We find ourselves caught someplace, and then we find a way to let go of it. That feeling doesn't hold on. It moves. If we, don't, if we cling to it, if we're stuck on it, then it gets worse and worse. But if we can just breathe into it and allow the mind to change, then we watch, then we're looking into the nature of impermanence which, as Nagarjuna said, is actually the th- raising the thought of enlightenment. So, uh, he says, while meditation practice will not result in this kind of fear or attachment, our effort will lead in the opposite direction. So the more you practice, the more your mind resumes its fundamental state, big, where there is no feeling of attachment, no discrimination, no fear. This is how we express the difference between your effort in meditation and your, and your effort in the habits of ordinary life. I want to read one more thing. And this is from a question and answer uh, at uh, Tassajara in 1968. Uh, student asks, uh, Roshi, what should I do about the fear that causes small mind or limited mind? Suzuki Roshi says, fear looks like something that will, un- that will cover your entire being. But if you wait, if you watch it, watch the fear, watch yourself, there will not be any more fear. So if you can actually fully engage with the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness of what is arising, then that then fear is just part of the river that's flowing through. I'm sure many of you have experienced this, and yet we're not done with it because we're not uh, fully enlightened. We get caught, uh, but every time we're caught, we can also release. So he says... Whatever it is, is necessary to drive your fear. Uh, 
it's a little awkward expression, but what he means, Suzuki also, Roshi often said, you be the boss of you. And what he means by that, not boss like boss around, but it's like, don't be driven by your feelings. Don't be pushed around by your feelings. But if you take responsibility for them, then uh, if you, 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 know, you stand up to your feelings rather than believing in them, uh, then you have some freedom. The follow-up question was, Suzuki Roshi, love is love and hate is hate and love is empty and hate is empty. It wasn't a real question, it was just this kind of formulation. And he says, well, there you will have a great sorrow or longing, the loneliness of emptiness. That's a beautiful expression, the loneliness of emptiness, uh, which means perhaps the yearning, longing for the infinite that we have, the longing to connect, the feeling that sometimes there is just simply a gap. And yet, I feel this as a, uh, as a bittersweet experience, like, you know, like really good dark chocolate, uh, that it's very rich. There's, there's some bite to it. It's very rich and fully satisfying. Uh, and to recognize that each of us carries this uh, loneliness of emptiness. One of our ancestors, uh, Dogen Zenji, in the 13th century, uh, one of the things he said was, when Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something is missing. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something's missing. Uh, if I were to add a gloss to that, I would say, you realize that something is missing, and that's just fine. Instead of our habitual American way, if, if I will, if you, if you will, uh, of trying to fill up, concretize, uh, consume anything we can to get rid of this feeling that something is missing. So when we try to do that, then we're caught in this fear. So Suzuki Roshi says, you will have a great sorrow or longing, the loneliness of emptiness. Until you get accustomed to this experience, you cannot get out of trouble or fear or whatever it is. When you can remain still with some composure in the pitch dark, you will have true deep composure. This is, this is what our practice is, to just be still and accepting of whatever arises in our mind without pushing it away, without clinging to it. And it's something we do together. You come, you know, there's about 70 people in this room who came here on a Monday night to do this same kind of thing. Uh, so we help each other. Just by being in the same room together, we help each other. This room full of people uh, is making the world. This room full of people, some of you don't even know why you're here, I'm sure. Uh, but just, well, this is what I'm doing tonight. This is what I've said I'm going to do.
Uh, some of you feel really connected to the group of people. Some of you probably feel lonely, like not fully connected. Some of you may be new. Some of you may be tired from working all day. And yet we come and we practice here together with whatever is arising. And this is how we make the world. Now, of course, I'm oversimplifying because then there's all kinds of other problems and policies and things we have to figure out. But if we're willing to sit and actually see what it is that we are afraid of, then we can communicate with ourselves and communicate with each other. Uh, and I, I urge you, I urge you to do that. And I'm just uh, inspired and encouraged uh, to visit and be with a group of people who are doing it. And people are doing this. This is a very natural human activity. Uh, I say this. I've been working in a prison for 12 years, women's federal prison. We have a very strong group there, like about 25 women, and it's amazing. It's it feels just like being here, really comfortable. We have a lot of intimacy with each other. Uh, and I said this is a fundamental human experience, and yet so rare and precious as well. So I think I'm going to stop there. It's almost nine o'clock. I'd like to leave a couple, you know, a couple of minutes for for questions and. Uh, responses, and also I'll stay around for a few minutes after. Um, anything? Yeah, Dick. Hi. Hi. Um, Good to see you. Um, you said something about love and loving. Yes. And then you passed right over it. You said love is empty and hate is empty. I, that was not me. That was somebody else. Oh, it wasn't? You were reading something? Yeah, I was reading something. Well, um, I don't know what she meant. Oh, <laughs> it was a she now. So what's your question? <laughs> um, did you really mean anything, or, or do you, will you, would you disagree with the statement that love and loving and all that is emptiness? There's emptiness about it? Yes, but depends on what you mean by emptiness. Uh, what I mean by emptiness is, emptiness to me is the expression of complete interdependence. Interdependence. When we say, uh, when we say empty, for example, uh, we call this provisionally a guitar. Uh, but which part is the guitar? Is this is this part the guitar? Is the, this part the guitar? Right. It's empty of. It's empty of its self nature. It has. It's made up of things. It's made up of strings, of wood, of metal. You're made up of flesh and bones and brain. Uh, so emptiness is about complete interdependence. So, of course, love is empty because it's the greatest interdependence. So it's not a pejorative sense. The word empty is problematic in English because it has a, it has a negative value. In, in Pali, uh, it, it's shunyata, which doesn't exactly mean emptiness. Uh, you know, not it doesn't mean like empty, like scary empty. And this is a problem. We're, we actually are afraid of emptiness. We're afraid of letting go of ourself. We're afraid of dying. There were other quotations 
I could have read. Um, but really, nothing is born and nothing dies. And if we recognize that, then, then, we, then the love that we have for every being, including those we're in conflict with, there's space for it to arise. So that's, we could, we could talk about this for several years. <laughs> Maybe, I I yeah, yeah, one more, one more, because I'm aware of the time, yeah. Um, I actually understood most of your talk, which is unlike most of the Zen teachers that I listen to, so I thank you for that. And in, um, in helping future Zen teachers that I'm come sorry, yeah, here, yeah. is that the standard Zen definition of emptiness, complete interdependence? That would help me understand yes. future teachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. It is. So it's what's that, the opposite called? Fullness? Uh, the, what? I mean, what is it called when you aren't interdependent? <coughs> Delusion. I mean, liberation or whatever. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Delusion. To, be del- to think that things are somehow have their own self-nature, you know, or which is sort of a platonic ideal of, you know, uh, the, the glass or the guitar. Um, you know, you think about the, the, uh, that wonderful quotation from Achan Shah, uh, who said, this glass is already broken. Uh, it's seeing... This is, this is a glass because it's functioning like a glass. Uh, we make it a glass. Otherwise, it's, you know, what is it if it doesn't have any water in it? You know, and if you don't know the name for it. So the question is, in your bare perception, uh, how do you accept things without even necessarily knowing how they are? But in our, the reality that we live, everything is co-constructed. This is, if you, if you, uh, study you know, this basic, the basic discovery that the Buddha made, uh, the most basic discovery, I think, is the notion of dependent origination, which is, I don't know if you study it, very complex, but it's all about how everything is co-constructed because there is no, there is no fixed self. The self is just the, the interaction of various kinds of elements and causes and conditions. And that is emptiness. That's very helpful. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Well, we should probably end. It's after nine. Uh, thank you very much. I'm going to stay around for a few minutes. I enjoyed being here with you. <laughs>